Um, we're doing something really strange as we gather uh, here together. Um, we're looking at uh, something that, uh, from the world's perspective, looks pretty foolish, uh, kind of irrelevant, outdated, um, maybe even immoral. Um, and we're gathering together to hear uh, these books that are gathered together in a collection of books um, that were written two to 3,000 years ago, supposedly that will impact our lives right now. And if you've come to church regularly, that's just what we do. But if you're outside of church, that seems like kind of a really strange thing to do, right? Um, we've had a survey that's gone out, and many of you have responded, and I've been really encouraged to see how many in our body say that they actually pick up and read the Word of God every day. That's a, that's a really good thing. But we also asked about questions and, and obstacles that you had as you read Scripture challenges that are out there. And uh, so we're going to take a break from our series in Matthew. And we started this uh, about a year and a half ago where we're focusing on a spiritual practice or spiritual discipline or spiritual exercise because as leaders we felt like, okay, there's all this information, but then how do we get that information to translate actually into our lives? And Dallas Willard is a, a guy that's did not, done a lot of writing on Christian formation and how we become more like Christ. And one of his comments that I, I remember, he says, we can't expect to experience the life of Christ unless we're willing to live the lifestyle of Christ. So as we've been looking at Jesus and saying, okay, what were those things in his life that, that really characterized his spiritual walk? And about a year and a half ago, we started with the practice of prayer. Because we saw that as central and probably the key practice that Jesus had in his life. That practice that created intimacy with he and his father and recognizing that he said, I don't do anything other than what the father communicates to, to me. And we saw Jesus regularly getting away and spending time with his father. And then the next practice we looked at about six months later was the whole practice of community that God has called us to be together in this, that we are not solo players. And this is becoming increasingly challenging, I think, in our culture, especially with COVID as everybody was kind of non-gathering and it's like, man, I don't really need anybody. All I need is my podcast and Jesus and we're good, right? And we recognize that, no, we need more than that. We need to encourage one another daily, Scripture says. We need to be a spur to one another, to love and to good deeds. So we looked at that practice of community. And then we looked at that practice of silence and solitude where Jesus would go away to the Aramos, the lonely place, the deserted place, just to kind of disengage from the constant noise. And just think about Jesus' culture. It's an agrarian culture. You know, nobody was on an iPhone. There was no earbuds in. You know, and if Jesus in that culture needed to get away to kind of focus on his relationship with the Father, how much more do we need to do that? I have not talked to anybody recently that has said, you know, my life is just too quiet. It's too peaceful. I got too much rest in my life. I don't know what to do with all that rest. And so we saw Jesus in the midst of even the busyness of his life saying, I need to get away. 
And sometimes he got up early in the morning. I'm an early morning person, and I think, yeah, that's got to be the godly way. If you're a night person, you could say early morning is 1 to 2 in the morning, and that's even earlier than I get up, so, so that's fine. But the point is to, to spend time away in silence and solitude, disconnecting from all of our devices and just saying, Lord, I want to be in your presence, and I want to hear from you. So we've looked at those and then the practice we're going to be looking at starting this morning for a few weeks is Scripture. Studying and reflecting and meditating on Scripture because we see this as a huge element in Jesus' life as well. We don't see any time where it says Jesus went and you know he was reading his Bible, having his quiet time. But so often in Jesus' life we see Jesus aware of Scriptures. In Luke 4, he opens the psalm of I, or the scroll of Isaiah. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me to pronounce good news to the poor. And so he goes right to that section. So he was obviously very familiar with it. When he was up in Jerusalem at age 12, he's talking with the religious leaders and he's astounding them with his questions about Scripture and what was going on. You remember his temptation that we encountered in Matthew 4. Every time that Jesus faces down a temptation, what's his response? It is written, right? When Satan says, yeah, eat this bread, he says, it is written. Man does not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So Jesus had a super high view of Scripture, and obviously he had spent time pondering it, meditating on it. And, you know, this is a very kind of memorization, oral culture where people would memorize massive amounts of Scripture. And we hear that today in some Middle Eastern cultures. And how in the world do they do that? But it's very likely that Jesus had a lot of the Old Testament memorized, that he could just pull that out. It's interesting in the temptations, when Jesus quotes the Scripture, they're all from Deuteronomy 6 through 8. So it's interesting. I'm just wondering, okay, if Jesus that morning had been pondering those things and then Satan comes at him, it's like, oh, by the way, I just read that this morning. How many of you has that happened to you where you're studying something and that very day something you face, you had read about, it applies in Scripture? So as as we've looked at this whole topic of Scripture and how to study Scripture and meditate on it, frankly, uh, I've been a little bit challenged to know where to begin. This is such a massive topic. Do I begin with all of the contemporary challenges that are out there to Scripture today? Um, Phil, do you want to put up that slide? This is just one meme that is out there of thousands of memes that get to the Bible. And it's like, could have been slavery or shellfish. Shellfish. He chose shellfish. So that, that's the stuff that's out there that basically says, you Christians, you're idiots for believing this Bible. So the attack against Scripture and the authority of Scripture to me is more intense than it is ever been. And we were talking about this in Sunday school. When I came to Christ back in the dark ages of 1985, um, being a Christian, it was just kind of, my friends just kind of thought it was weird. It was strange, but they didn't look at me as like, Brett, you're evil. They just thought, you're wasting your life. What are you going to seminary for? You know, you had a lot of potential and now you're just throwing it all away. Now when people come to Christ, often the cultural response is not only are you crazy, but you are evil, maybe immoral, homophobic, racist, misogynistic, violence-oriented, all of those kind of things. So I, I feel for those that come to Christ now because there's so much pushback against the Word. And you get online and now immediately every criticism of the Bible is available to everybody. 
you know, like, how do I handle that? So I thought, well, do I start with focusing on that and looking at some of those issues? We are going to look at that, but I did not want to start there. I also thought about, you know, uh, do we focus on how we get the Bible or how we have gotten the Bible and the process that the scriptures that we have have come to us? And again, I think that's important, but I didn't want to start there. Or this process of how do we go about correctly interpreting the scripture? And again, all those are really, really important. But I wanted to focus on this morning basically why I go to Scripture. Why I have basically spent my life, most of my life, studying this book. Why at a foundational level should we take this collection of 66 books that have been written over a period of a couple thousand years that were written thousands of years ago. Seriously, why should I view them as an authority in my life? And why should you view it as an authority in your life? And I was thinking I could get up here and I could list all the statistics about how scriptures, there's more manuscript evidence and all of that kind of stuff. But to me, that's not where it started with me. I take the Bible and the Scriptures seriously because Jesus, the Son of God, who loved us and saved us, who died and rose again, and I've trusted Him, He took the Scriptures very seriously. In 1985, after about 22 and a half years of life, of living, where I was the boss of my own life, I was determining what was right and wrong. I wanted to go in whatever path I wanted to go to maximize pleasure, to minimize pain, to get what I wanted out of life. The Holy Spirit, by His grace, opened my eyes to the reality of who Jesus was and what He had done for me. And at that point in time, as a friend says, I came out of the cave with my hands up, saying, okay, I'm no longer going to rule and reign in my life. If you are God, and I believe you are God, then that has a logical entailment that you know a little bit more than I know. And I've been living my life and all the stuff that you said, this is what gives you life. I'd lived it long enough to say, yeah, there was a rush in that for a little while, but it really hasn't given me life. It hasn't given me a sense of purpose and meaning and why am I here and the big question is, why should I continue to exist at all if this is just a pointless, meaningless thing? I'm a blob of protoplasm that one day is going to return to the dirt and we'll move forward from there. No, we won't move forward because there will be nothing left. And by the grace of God and the work of the Holy Spirit, I said, Jesus, I believe that you not only walked on this planet, but that you died for my sins, for my rebellion, for my wanting to be the God of my own life. And you bore that consequence of my sin and you took that penalty. And not only did you face that penalty in death, but you rose again from the grave. And there are all sorts of religious teachers out there that say this is the way and that is the way. But as far as I know, Jesus is the only one that claimed, hey, I'm going to die and three days later I'm going to rise from the dead. And if that event really happened, then I probably should pay attention to what he was saying. And like most of you, many times I think I'm smarter than God. And for a long time in my life, I thought I knew this is what life is about. But I was immediately taken up short and recognized, you know what, I'm not smarter than God. And I've tried to go down a lot of roads that would indicate this is where life is found, but it wasn't found there. 
And when I came to Christ, I had this immediate longing to know his word better. And at that point in time, I was working for a bank, and crazy as it is, I would get up before I'd go to work, and I'd listen to three teachers in the morning, and then do my Bible study. It's like, I couldn't get enough of this, because it was like, this is, this is what gives me life. This is what gives me hope and meaning and purpose, and I'm longing for this, and I've been running so many ways and never really had hope and life, but now it's available to me. And as I saw Jesus portrayed, I saw him taking Scripture really, really, really seriously. If you look at Matthew 5, that passage that we've already looked at, starting in verse 17, Jesus says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets, that combination that refers to the Old Testament Scriptures. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. That word abolish was used of tearing down a building, and the Jews at that time would use that of disobeying or disregarding the Word of God. And Jesus was obviously teaching and doing stuff that people thought, wow, he's, he's abolishing the Word of God. He's doing things different than our teachers are saying we need to do them. But Jesus says, no, 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 no. That's not why I'm here. I've actually come to fulfill them, to fill them out. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth passes away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then Jesus goes on in Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount to say, you've heard it said, this was the interpretation you've been given of the Old Testament text, but I say to you. And what does he do in all of those? He takes something external and he internalizes it. And he says the issue is really at the heart. And the Pharisees, they're dealing with all this external stuff, but it's not touching the heart. These people honor me with their lips, but what? Their hearts are far from me. So we can go through the religious motions and our heart can be disconnected from God. And Jesus says, I've come to fulfill this law, to internalize it so it becomes part of who you are, the law written on your heart. Jesus isn't saying that the scriptures are irrelevant. In fact, he's saying that the scriptures are very relevant. And you know what? They all point to me. Remember Jesus on the road to Emmaus. He opens the Old I would have loved to have been there. He opens the Old Testament scriptures. And he says, yeah, you see all that sacrifice stuff? That all points to me. Yeah, let's go to Isaiah 53. That points to me. I'm the servant. I'm the Messiah. And all that kind of stuff. So Jesus takes the scriptures very seriously. In John 10.35, he says, the scripture cannot be broken. In Mark 12.36, He says this, David himself by the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord. So he's quoting the psalm, he's quoting David, and he says, David by the Holy Spirit says this. David has, as we talked about in Sunday school this this morning, been inspired by God to pen this psalm. So as I look at the reason of why I trust scriptures, why I take them seriously, I don't trust scriptures because of the weight of all the evidence that scriptures to me are the best testified book of the ancient period and it speaks to so many different things over a period of so many different years. I trust in Jesus, therefore I trust the scriptures. Because I think when we start out with trusting in scriptures, then we have all sorts of things we have to wrestle through. First, to me, I need to get my relationship with Jesus right. If he really is the Son of God, then what he says is true. And if he has a high view and takes scripture seriously, then I probably should as well. There's a whole lot of things in scripture that I still wrestle with, and we're going to talk about some of that stuff. But to me, my starting point is I need to look at Jesus. What is his view? 
of Scripture. And I need to go from there. In Hebrews 1.1, if you'll turn there, we'll be bouncing around a little bit. I don't usually do this, but forgive me. This is what the author of Hebrews says. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. So he's saying basically in the Old Testament period, God spoke to the fathers, the prophets, in many ways. Sometimes there's dreams, sometimes there's vision. The Old Testament talks about riddles, and it's like, whoa, this stuff is not super clear. Sometimes it's really hard to understand. But in these last days, that time since Christ has come, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So what is the author saying here? That the ultimate revelation of who God is comes not necessarily through the written word and the prophets, but through Jesus Christ. I'm not saved by this book. I'm saved by Jesus Christ, and because I've been saved by Jesus Christ, I trust in this book. So to me, I take Scripture seriously because I take Jesus seriously. And so, you may have lots that you're still trying to work out in Scripture. And to me, that's okay. An understanding of Scripture doesn't come immediately. As you read through Scripture, you'll recognize that the main focus, though we're supposed to study Scripture to interpret it correctly, the main focus that's often talked about is meditating on Scripture. Anybody here memorize Joshua 1.8? Some speak up. Yeah, be strong and courageous. Okay. <laughs> Any more than that. <laughs> All right, let's turn to Joshua 1 8, because you guys have done miserable at. <laughs> All right. This book of the law, talking to Joshua, shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. So he tells Joshua to meditate on the book of the law. Let's turn over to Psalm 1. I could get there. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. This idea of meditation, it's not kind of the Eastern concept of you go somewhere and you try to empty your mind of all things. Biblical meditation or scriptural meditation is you ponder and you focus on the text of Scripture. And the reality of that, and to me what it says is, I'm not going to pick up everything on the first reading of Scripture. This is not something, not everything's on the bottom shelf. And I know we want a culture that everything is easy and I read it once and I've got it and maybe I can get, you know, the Cliff Notes version or the executive summary of this and I can just move on and move forward, right? 
But Scripture is meant to be pondered and meant to be gone over and over again. That word was used of cows chewing the cud over and over. You know, they've got several stomachs. It's kind of a gross thing, but, you know, they're just kind of regurgitating and chewing this up. It also was used of of doves, kind of that cooing, murmuring, just talking through, what does this mean for my life? God is near. Do not be anxious about anything. God is near. Do not be anxious about anything. I'm going to the doctor. God is near. Do not be anxious about anything. My boss called me in for uh, kind of an unexpected meeting. God is near. Do not be anxious about anything. The washer and dryer just broke. And then the AC went out. God is near. Do not be anxious about anything. So it's that way of Scripture not just being an intellectual exercise, but how does this apply to my life? What is the reality of this as I live my life out? Am I pondering, meditating on it? Am I thinking it through? And again, there's going to be stuff you encounter that's like, I just do not understand this. You know, you're in good company. Peter said, you know, some stuff that Paul's written, it's pretty difficult to understand in 2 Peter 3.16. And he calls it scripture, right? So he's like, okay, you know, there's going to take some serious thought sometimes. And we don't want that. We just, I just want to get it. I just want to get it. I'm going to do my devotional. I'm going to go, boom, that's my verse for the day. And it's like, oh, well, maybe you need to read that in context. What's it saying? All of those kind of things. So again, to ponder, to meditate on Scripture because that's what Jesus did. And secondly, I take the Scriptures seriously because they're life-giving and life-transforming. Turn, if you would, to 2 Timothy 3. Verse 16, this is probably familiar to many of you. All scripture or sacred writings is breathed out by God. Some of your translations may say inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. We've also looked at Hebrews 4.12. The Word is God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. So that idea of of God breathed and living is prominent there. 1 Peter 1.23 says, You've been born again through the living and enduring Word of God. And I thought there was like, okay, what does it mean? We talk about inspiration or something is God-breathed. What does that actually mean? What is God breathing in the Scriptures? And the word breathe and breath and wind, they're all related in scriptures. In the Old Testament, it's the word ruach. And it's this wind or spirit of God sometimes it's translated. And in Genesis, the spirit of God is hovering over the waters. And then God breathes into Adam and he becomes alive. We see Jesus breathing into his disciples and imparting the Holy Spirit. So I was thinking, okay, what is the main idea behind this God-breathed idea? I think, yeah, it means it's truthful, but I think there's more to that. I think it means it's life-giving. It's the thing that gives life to us. And here, Paul gives us four ways in which it does that. It's breathed out by God and it's profitable for teaching. Let me ask you, Where do you get your instruction for what the good life is from? 
Where does that come? Who, who are you listening to? What is the authority in your life? We live in a world that is just full of information. I, I gave that thing about, you know, I, I googled, you know, are bananas good for you? And there were over 200, or 2 million hits of that. It's like, wow, 2 million people have written on bananas. And, you know, it's like, that's just a little thing. And it's like, what is the good life? You know, I didn't even try that. But, but what's your source? What is your authority? Is it you? I'm the one that determines what the good life is for me. Paul says it's scripture. It's the writings of God. It's the word of God that directs us to what is good. Because scriptures let us know that there's an inherent bias in all of us that pushes back against the truth. We don't, in essence, want the truth. We push it down. We don't want messing with our lives because it's going to challenge our own thinking. Proverbs says there's a way that seems right to a human being, but the end thereof is death, destruction. It's not good. And again, I've gone down some of those roads. And initially, they present themselves as, it's like, whoa, this seems right. This is where life is. Life is found in doing whatever sexually I want to do. That's where life is found. Or life is found in making as much money, having the nicest house, nicest car that I have. Or life is found in achieving the most that I can achieve and stepping on whoever I need to get to that position. And that works until it doesn't work. And then you realize, man, that's not life. And so where do we get our instruction on what is the good life? To me, I go to Scripture. You've heard it said. You've heard it said, the way to life is doing whatever you want. You're the boss of you. Don't let anybody tell you. You do you. And Scripture says, no, maybe you should do what God's designed you to be and to do. And see, I'm not going to go that way unless I understand the heart of God. God is not trying to rob me. He's not trying to rip me off. He has created me for a relationship with him and he's designed me to experience life and Jesus says that life to the full. And as I experience that life to full, it, it more and more shows me yeah, all those paths that I was running down. Lord, thank you that I'm not still running down those paths because I know people that have run down those and where they are right now. And some of that stuff doesn't show up in 10 or 15 years. Some of it shows up a lot later. Scriptures talk about sowing the wind and reaping the whirlwind, literally reaping the tornado. So there's a way that seems right to me and I need teaching to say, no, that's not the good life, even though that is initially what appeals to you being the good life. And that's what everybody around you is saying is the good life. So it's useful for teaching. It's useful for rebuking or reproof. And this is what we don't like. All right? Who in our world is giving somebody honest feedback if they're going in a direction that's not that healthy? Other than their doctor when you go in for your physical and said, hey, you need to take a few pounds off, you need to get exercising again, Right? Nobody in our world, it's like, man, whatever. You do whatever you want to do. I'm not going to mess with you. You know, as long as it doesn't spill over into my life, man, whatever you're into, go ahead, be into it. No one will say, hey, maybe that's not going to actually produce health in your life. 
And this is kind of a new stage in culture because for years and for centuries and for millennia, human beings have recognized that there are some desires in us that probably aren't that healthy to exercise. And regardless of the religious kind of frame that you're in, there were certain things that, no, this is, you do not go towards this desire because that's not going to produce what's life, even if that's what you want. And so there was this sense of, yeah, I just don't do whatever I want to do because that's not going to actually be really healthy for me or the people around me. But now the message is totally different. Whatever you desire, whatever you want, that is, that is good. And if you don't pursue that, then psychologically that's really damaging. You're being quashed. You're not being free, right? And that whole question of what is, what is freedom, and Scripture talks about, you know, you're not really free if we become in bondage to that thing that we think is providing us with freedom. And we don't have to look very far in our culture to see so many things that have their claws in people and at the beginning said, this is what's life. And you look at the number of overdoses for fentanyl now because it's just like, oh man, it's just a little high, it's going to get you, but that's awesome. Yeah, until you get that drug that's been laced with something that's a lot more powerful than you thought and then it's not so awesome. It's a way that you thought would provide life but ends in death. So am I willing to place myself under the word when it comes and rebukes me and says, Brett, that desire that you have there, that's not good actually. In fact, no, accumulating a bunch of possessions for your own pleasure, that's not what life is about. But, but I want that that's not ultimately what's going to provide you with life. You may become a Russian oligarch, but your $600 million yacht may be repossessed in Italy. You know, who knows what may happen to you. So it's useful for rebuking, for telling us honestly what our problem is. And again, you know, we go to a doctor and the doctor has some really bad news and that doctor doesn't share that bad news because he wants to depress us. And if that doctor knew that I had some really serious disease and that doctor said, you know, he's a really nice guy. I don't want to ruin his day. So... I'm just going to let it slide. What would happen to that doctor? He would be sued for malpractice. And again, it goes back to our view of God. If God knows what is producing health and life in my life, and he says, this is not going to produce health and life in your life. In fact, this is possibly cancerous, and you need to deal with that before it destroys your life. Am I willing to listen to that? That is a way that scriptures are life-giving because they remove those things that will produce death and destruction in my life. Then he says it's useful for correcting. How do I get back onto that right path? What is going to lead me towards life? And Scripture provides that guidance, and it's kind of what we're talking about here. What are those things that I do in my life that will keep me connected to God, the source of life? And then finally, training in righteousness. It's the word paideia, the Roman idea of the time of training from a child being young till that child reaches maturity that is accomplished through study, through discipline, through exercise, that whole thing that, that God's Word is designed to make me a mature person. Paul says, you know, I'm doing all this so that you are mature in Christ, so that you become more like Jesus Christ. God's Word provides that push towards that goal in our life. So we get into the Word, so why are we in the Word? To gather more information? 
I think we've all known Christians that are full of a lot of biblical information and data, yet who don't seem to be full of love and grace and kindness towards other people. Paul says, All Scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may trump anybody else who doesn't know the Word quite as well as him and really put him down and in his place. No. That the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. That word competent means perfectly designed for the task it's been given, the ideal representative of kind of that particular thing. So he's saying the Word of God enables you to be competent, to be ready to be what? The kind of people that are equipped for every good work. The goal of knowing Scripture is not knowing Scripture and being able to check all the right boxes on a doctrine test. The goal of Scripture is a transformed life. Right? End of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, you know, gives us an example of two houses and he says, what are you building your foundation on? Well, rock or sand, and what's the difference there? The one that hears my word, so we have to hear it, we have to understand it, that's clear, but then he puts it into, excuse me, practice in terms of actually living this stuff out and seeking to be transformed and changed by it. In Romans 12, 2, Paul says, we're to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. It's transformation. It's, it's being changed to become more like Christ that's the goal of Scripture. In 1 Timothy 1.5, Paul says, the goal of our instruction is love. That's why I'm teaching you. Some translations say charge or instruction or teaching. Why I'm teaching you is so that you love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. For many years, probably I was just so focused on amassing all the scripture information I could because I'm a pastor and I have to be ready for anybody who asks any question that they may have about scripture or the world or life or philosophy and, and I just have to be ready for that. But then I realized, you know what? The goal is not so much that I know it all but the goal is that I transformed and live a loving life like Christ. And I went to school and I got a master's of divinity. Think of the arrogance of that. <laughs> I'm mastering God. Okay, I've got this, ma I mastered God. No. The point is that God masters me because there's a whole lot of me that needs to be changed and needs to become more Christ-like. So are you reading God's word for transformation or for information? 1 Corinthians 8.1 says, Knowledge puffs up, but love, what? Builds up. It's, and I don't know if this is an internet phenomenon, but there's just so many Christians that are just arguing with one another constantly. It's everywhere. Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.14, Charge them not to quarrel about words. There's a whole lot of quarreling about words going on. My interpretation is better than yours. Oh Yeah. Romans 14.2 says, don't quarrel over opinions. Just accept that weaker brother. And that weaker brother was the one that was more tied into a legalistic understanding of Christianity. And eating foods, that was the big deal in their day, but it's not so big in ours. But if you're going to eat kosher or not eat kosher, and Paul says, don't get into that with this idea that I'm going to change the other person. 
but I got to get them on the right path. They're going to go off the right path. It's my dog. And Paul says, hey, that person will be able to stand. Why? Because the Holy Spirit can make them stand. And I've heard people argue, we've got to correct everybody because if you're an inch off here, you're going to be a million miles off down the road. That's true without the Holy Spirit being involved. And I'm not saying you never correct. I'm not saying you never say something. But the reality is that if that person is a genuine believer in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit is in their life and he will work in his time and his way. Yes, we do need Matthew 18 and I believe in all of that. But sometimes we're way too quick to slam somebody that doesn't exactly agree with my particular understanding and I will wrangle with you over the word because my definition of that word is better than yours. And I used to think, I'll go to seminary and then I'll know the Greek definition of that. And then you'll get in seminary and you'll realize, oh man, there's like three or four different Greek dictionaries. Which one am I going to use, use here? You know? And it's like the reality is that I am saved by Jesus Christ and I love his word, but I'm not saved by this Bible. I am saved by Jesus Christ and I have confidence in this Bible because of what he says about it. And his goal for my life is to be more like him. And it's, as we talked about in Sunday school this morning, it's like, if love is not evident there, I may know all the scripture in the world, but I'm just a clanging sound. So where are you this morning as you look at scripture? And we're going to talk about some of the challenges and some of the obstacles in the week to come. But to me, is my heart posture one of submission to scripture? Do I come to it with an understanding, God, you know more about me than I know about me. And most of the time, I think I know more than you know. That's just honest. And there's a lot of times you're at work in my life in a way that I don't like, and I want to push back against that, but God, help me to submit to the truth of your word. Not because I'm here to grin and bear it, but I'm here to experience life and that life to the full. And that is what you say your word is going to provide me. It's life-giving. It's breathed out by you. And I've said this over and over. You know, we spend millions of dollars on these SETI projects to hear, beep, beep, there's intelligence out there. It's like, okay, yeah, that would be awesome. I don't think the scripture says there's no aliens out there. Possibly, I don't know. But the reality is we've got the one that has designed this whole universe and he's communicated in a way that we can understand and not just a beep, beep. What does that mean? I don't know, but it's awesome, isn't it? So do I take the word of God seriously? And we're going to talk, I don't like the word literally because I think that can be so misunderstood. You know, scripture is full of all different types of literature. And when the scripture says the trees of the field clap their hands, he's not meaning, okay, the trees literally grow hands and they start. No, it's a metaphor. So you've got to interpret scripture based on the type of literature it is. And, and we'll get to some of that. But the reality is I take scripture very seriously. I believe it is God-breathed. And God, through all my years, has been super gracious in giving life and hope through this book. I don't live it out perfectly, but I can't imagine what my life would have been like had I not been guided and directed by His Word. And my hope and my prayer for you is that you allow it to guide and direct your life as well. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You are a God that communicates. And your ultimate communication is Jesus Christ. He is the exact representation of the Father. So we come to Him first and we look to Him to guide and direct us. And 
Lord, we just ask that we would take your word as seriously as he did. That we would spend time pondering and meditate on it. That we would recognize that it's going to take some time, but Lord, give us persistence. Give us insight and illumination and wisdom. Lord, help us to approach it with humility and graciousness as we talk with our brothers and sisters about it. But most of all, Lord, we want to know what is true. We want to orient our lives around that which is reality. So, Lord, help us to do that. Guide us. Give us a desire for your word. Help us to know your truth, that we will be set free. And it's in Jesus' powerful and precious name I pray. Amen.